Thanks for coming along tonight. We're um, Jennifer Hewitt and uh, Joe Hildebrand make welcome returns to the Sydney Institute. You know them both. I'll introduce them briefly. Jennifer Hewitt is the National Affairs Columnist for the Australian Financial Review, and Joe Hildebrand, Hildebrand a New York a News Corp columnist and a Sky News contributor. So we're going to start off with Jennifer. We're going to go to Joe, and then we'll go to questions and discussion. And the general topic is um, uh, Australian politics 2024. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Jared. It's great to be here again after uh, quite a break, really. Um, but uh, yes, this this uh, topic is pretty broad, clearly. Um, and as the promo for this event explained, uh, 2024 has begun with a bit of a bang for the Albanese government rather than the usual uh, summer torpor. Um, now, I'm actually a little wary about predicting the year ahead in politics or anything else, um, given uh, all the unknowns and, and of course, the, also the recent track, uh, track record of exports, experts, particularly in economics, predicting anything at all. Um, but I think the key theme of this year is going to be the government wants to be seen to be doing things, yet it's also showing a relative lack of interest in, in major difficult or reform with short-term political um, politics trumping long-term policy and of course in all that the dangers of and the and the problems in, in implementation so I think in general um, Labor's MO uh, remains various ministers operating in a disconnected often a, a contradictory way although under the general rubric of fairness rather than signaling any comprehensive or coherent strategy to um, grow the economy uh, but still, it's very clear this week that Labor's mood has dramatically improved since it's about turn on tax cuts. That's evident in Albanese's uh, much more um, aggressive and lively demeanour in Parliament um, and boosted again by the uh, likely uh, the deal on industrial relations changes uh, again today. But in general, I'd say that um, Chalmers and Albanese are counting on a steadily improving outlook for inflation and therefore interest rates uh, with cuts to come in the second half to make everybody feel better. Most people were confused about what the government was actually doing and certainly what it was doing for them. The cost of living crisis became code for a government not, lifting up, uh, not living up to its promises um, and, not, and really not in control of events. Um, complaining about nine years of coalition inaction wasn't enough anymore. Labor too has been finding the hard slogging work of delivering in government, particularly in a gridlock federal system, is frustratingly um, slow and often doesn't actually progress you very far, even assuming you have a clear plan, which Labor didn't appear to have at all. And then, of course, there were nasty surprises, the government's inept reaction to the High Court decision on immigration leading to the release of people in detention was particularly damaging politics, uh, undermining the claim to incompetence or the fact that Labor could be trusted on border security um, in all the marginal electorates it needs to um, keep on board. This obviously compounded um, growing anger over the increased cost of rents and the dire housing shortages with Australia's unprecedented high immigration level over a record 500,000 last year sharing the blame. For that reason alone, the timing of the Christmas break was particularly fortuitous uh, as everybody switched off. Um, one senior Labor figure said to me um, this week, just imagine what, what would have happened if the High Court decision had been now rather than November. But that's then and this is now. The timing of the Dunkley by-election, uh, you probably don't know where it is, but just south of Melbourne, on March 2 was shaping up as a potential disaster for the Albanese government. That's in total contrast, of course, um, to winning the um, Aston by-election last year in a triumph. 
Um, so Dutton, Peter Dutton is hardly popular in Victoria, nor is the coalition really able to fra frame a coherent positive narrative itself, but it was getting some cut through. And the sense of grievance with the government was growing. So Albo decided that insisting his word was his bond wasn't worth it, not in the face of selling the idea of fairer tax cuts for 84% of Australians. After the coalition made the only logical choice to back in the tax cuts, he'll still make most much of the victory. Um, the $16 a week that people say will be for the average earner um, isn't much, obviously, but it still gives him and the government an easy story to sell and a definition that they've been lacking. Uh, and also, don't forget, although um, the, the stage three tax cuts and the original uh, tax cuts were the um, result of the coalition government, it means that people will be getting, most people will be getting a lot more than $16 a week. They'll be getting the, the combined effect and I'm sure they'll forget They'll, you know, thank Labor for it, many of them, um, even if they're not, even they say it's not enough. Certainly it means that Labor is being encouraged by the early polling in Dunkley and, and also um, just the um, reaction. And it's banking on the fact that people don't like politicians that much anyway, they don't trust them that much, and they don't expect integrity. So the immediately, immediate political cost is far outweighed by keeping the Dunkley seat safe. The next down payment on getting its momentum back uh, will be, and hopefully more popularity, will be the budget in May. So there'll be more handouts there. Um, the rationale that the government only changed its mind uh, on stage three because of the broader economic situation changing and global circumstances, of course, is complete bunkum. Everybody knows it. Uh, but in integrity, it turns out, is a very malleable concept, even if it was used to great effect by the Teals as well as Labor against Morrison at the last election. The thing, the catch is that all of these tactics go, I think, to the grim outlook for any long-term economic policy reform under this government. Working for the AFR, you would expect me to say that, I know. Um, now, this may be just like the last government, but there's far less excuse, I think, um, given the numbers in the Senate and given the ability, I think, of a Labor government to, at least if it's proposing some sensible economic uh, reform, to um, get the coalition on side a bit more than Labor's ability to scream about it, how unfair it is. Um, that'll be tested, of course. But a sensitive Jim Chalmers claims the result of the tax changes is, is delivering reform as well as relief. He's he very keen to, to stress that. But he knows that any reform aspect of stage three was always very modest, now more so. It's only just a temporary return of some of the worst of bracket creep. There'll clearly be no attempt at large-scale reform packages to try to alter Australia's unduly heavy reliance on income tax and making what is already a very highly progressive income tax system even more so. Prepare for a lot of more tinkering at best, uh, again under the banner of fairness, um, but certainly the era of grand nation-shifting ambition and cutting personal taxes in the nature of Kelty and Keating is long gone. Chalmers is instead, I think, crossing his fingers about how long it'll take for Australia to follow the rest of the world on curbing, curbing inflation and cutting interest rates uh, without unemployment rising too highly. Uh, that'll provide you know, the political cover they need for anything else, that's their plan. Um, and then you add in the announcement of things like uh, the inquiries into supermarkets in order to be seen to be doing something on prices. Uh, despite the rhetoric, these inquiries won't make much difference to prices for consumers, but they're a useful sponge for complaints and to be, again, to be seen to be doing something. So the government can say, look, we're, we're acting to stop any gouging by, that, by nasty big businesses. Um, having a mild summer, although it hasn't always felt like that in Sydney, I know, um, has been helpful. 
It means Labor can at least suggest, because um, there has been that strain on the, on the uh, network system, the electricity network. Um, it means Labor can at least suggest energy prices may come down rather than keep going up given the decline in wholesale prices. The continued blowouts and delays in building renewables transmission lines and the cost of all that to budgets and the consumers won't be apparent for some time. Likewise, or as apparent anyway, likewise Labor is confident the long-term cost to the economy and productivity of Tony Burke's backward-looking industrial relations agenda won't be apparent either to most people. Um, unemployment will go up, but hopefully not by that much. In the meantime, its latest rounds of changes will be, probably be relatively popular with a lot of employees, um, just as its backing of wage increases has been. The right to disconnect from work, this kind of fuzzy thing that's just been agreed on today, it probably seems like a good idea, um, particularly to young voters who are always on their um, tech, uh, unlike Gerard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Burke, Burke, who is extremely close to Albanese, is keen to give uh, the unions as much of their wishes as possible. That's very plain. Uh, that's as much to do with his own personal ambitions in the future as flying the banner of restoring real wages or better terms and conditions for workers. But the Liberals remain, at the moment, too scared of the memory of work choices to mount a full-scale attack on what's going on. And despite their complaints, they also know they don't have the numbers to block it anyway, given the makeup of the crossbench in the Senate and their, their predisposition there. Um, unlike much of the rest of the world, um, there won't be an election this year, um, I don't think. Um, Albanese is not inclined, despite some enthusiastic talk from people in his office. But what absolutely also isn't happening is any real national focus on how to improve productivity and economic dynamism in a slowing economy. Instead, Labor is relying quietly on commodity prices staying strong and the labor market staying relatively strong in order to keep that revenue flowing in. What also will not happen um, are any serious cuts in spending. The supposed curbs or, or reduction in spending on the NDIS, for example, is really a joke. They're absolutely an expression of hope over experience. There's absolutely really nothing going on. The government's budgeting savings in the future that it has absolutely no, no plan, no, no ability to implement, no, and it's certainly at the moment, there's no indication that anything's going to change. Now, this brings me circuitously, I must admit, to another big area of spending where the money and the programs don't match the rhetoric for all the wrong reasons. Our defence spending is massive even if it wasn't increased in the last budget. But it's also massively wasteful and incredibly ill-designed. Labor made much of attacking the coalition for this and for defense by press release. But it's just as guilty of repeating that, uh, that approach. And in fact, I think the record so far, although relatively short, is actually worse given the urgency of the need and the inanity of various decisions it's taken. Um, including, you know, the refusal to acquire armed drones anytime soon, or the recent decision to bury Taipan helicopters rather than supply Ukraine. Richard Miles looks the part, he always, always looks impressive, um, but he's actually more well known amongst his colleagues for his love of golfing than for any decisive action by a defence minister supposedly facing such challenging circumstances. Penny Wong, by contrast, also looks and sounds the part but she does deliver some things that matter, including her regular trips to the Pacific. The contrast with her near-invisible uh, predecessor, Maurice Payne, is instructive. To a large extent, however, she is still a creature of foreign policy circumstance. Labor was fortunate, for example, that the change of government gave Beijing 
the cover it was looking for to soften its rhetoric and its unsuccessful approach to strong-arming Australia. But this week's suspended death sentence for an Australian citizen demonstrates how superficial all that is and, and really how vulnerable um, the, the détente so-called is, uh, given what China is actually doing and what it intends to do. Um, Labor has, however, largely continued the coalition approach of strong rhetorical support for the US alliance and military cooperation, although, as we have said, not actually coming up with the, with the hardware or, or the ability to, to actually do much about it. But just as the domestic political turmoil in the US is complicating Biden's re-election chances, the war in Gaza is confusing the government's backing of Israel's right to defend itself. That includes, for example, Labor's attempts to assuage sentiments of various domestic constituencies, such as Muslim supporters in Western Sydney, with those of a fearful Jewish community suspicious of any weakening of support for Israel out of sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians. The intransigent of Benjamin Netanyahu's government only makes Labor's confusion uh, more obvious, and that confusion will definitely, in general, about the alliance will also be exacerbated this year if Trump does indeed win the US election in November. So in short, I guess I'd like to be more positive about the year ahead. <laughs> and I mean, after all, it is true that the world has avoided last year's fears of imminent recession. The soft landing still seems most likely at the moment. Um, and Australia, you know, has been actually expert um, at muddling through, kind of probably despite the politicians and despite the warning, warning signs. But as Michelle Bullock, um, RBA governor, uh, said this week, what worries her most is where the next shock is uh, coming from. And for that, I'll hand over to Jo. <laughs> thank you very, very much, uh, Jennifer. Thank you, Jared. And um, yes, thank you very much, Jennifer, for basically um, just reading out my entire speech because I um, agree uh, with everything you said, as I often do with very smart people, um, although yours was, of course, far more economically literate than mine is going to be. I'm just an art student, but we will try. Um, what, I, what I might do is um, is maybe put a bit of a meat on the bones of a lot of the points that Jennifer raised in terms of where Labor thinks it is going or thinks it needs to go and perhaps some of the sort of deeper thinking behind some of these, you know, what are called in polite circles pivots or backflips or lies, whatever you want to call them. Um, 2024... Uh, I agree, it's very difficult to see um, uh, many pots of gold at the end of the rainbow, although 2023 is pretty hard to beat in terms of just sheer disaster and misery. Um, I like even numbers, so that's one thing 2024 has got going for it. It's, um, you know, it's divisible by a lot of, uh, of 12s. Um, I think 2024 will be the year of Albo 2.0, and I would stress that this is not the real Albo. This is not him saying, you know, oh, you haven't really said, I've just been faking it until now, as of course Julia Gillard did so disastrous, disastrously in 2010. But Albo actually being and doing what he wants to be. And I was actually just writing that last night um, in my little notes when um, uh, Dennis Shanahan's piece on the front page of the, Daily, of the Australian popped up saying, you know, this is Albo unleashed, this is Albo out in his natural habitat. And I thought, well, if Dennis Shanahan's agreeing with me, I must be on the right track. And again, if Dennis, Dennis Shanahan's praising Albo, then you know he must be at least doing something right. Um, the difficulty... So we all know that Albo went to the last election in 2022 with a huge small target strategy, if that's not a 
contradiction in terms. Um, I think that was the right strategy. I think it had to be because Shorten, paradoxically, had exposed uh, Labor to so many fronts of attack from the, the coalition, which of course cost it in 2019. And, um, and again, was in some way sort of political and moral comeuppance for um, for Shorten and Labor's Mediscare campaign in 2016, which I thought was pretty disgraceful as well. Um, point being, Labor couldn't really say what it was going to do, didn't really know what it was going to do, and, um, and, and basically just said it was just going to be business as usual, um, almost Blair-esque, if you like. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher would be say, you know, Britain will be safe under Tony Blair. Conservatives could say Australia will be safe under um, Anthony Albanese. And the way that was reached paradoxically is because um, Albo is the ultimate pragmatist, he's the ultimate fixer, despite some of the rhetoric of my beloved colleague on Sky News, Bronwyn Bishop. He is not, or at least no longer, the the trot of old or the um, socialist left warrior of old. And even when he was, he was a very sort of clear-eyed, pragmatic fixer. And, you know, while people say, you know, Albo you know, said all these crazy things, most of the time when he was working in the ALP, Albo was telling the left how it was going to lose so that everyone looked like, you know, the left got a moral... The, the famous sort of cliche is it's the perfect result. The right gets to win and the left gets to go down fighting. And Albo was one of those critical high-up voices in engineering that. So I know that sounds a bit sort of maybe Canberra bubble or Sussex Street bubble or whatever you want to call it, but the idea that, you know, he's one of those people who would be going out and, you know, painting the Palestinian flag on the opera house is just completely and utterly wrong. And I say that as someone who knows him, I say that as someone who's sort of been schooled in, in, in labour politics, blooded in labour politics almost my entire um, adult life. Um, and it's ironic indeed now that Albo, and, and again, just touching on the Israel question, the party actually thinks it's being incredibly pro-Israel. Like Albo and Wong think they are being so out there pro-Israel because, of course, all the mail they're getting from their own constituents and, of course, from the activist left um, and, of course, from in southwest Sydney as well where many right-wing um, MPs have their seats on the line. Everything they're getting is that they're being told they're a bunch of genocidal, barbarian, murderous, bloodthirsty scums who's going to go to hell, like literally this sort of stuff. Um, one, um, someone um, uh, in, in Wong's office said that this sort of, the, it's almost 100 to 1 in terms of the volume of support for one side over the other. So they feel like they are really holding the line, even though I know on the right a lot of people think they're selling Israel down the drain. Um, anyway, that was just a, a kind of... So I suppose uh, this is a party that wants to be at the centre. And the way Albo got to power, and he knows about power and he knows about how to get there, the way he got to power was when Bill Shorten started sounding like a student socialist and started using class war rhetoric like the top end of town, started bringing in wealth redistribution policies like negative gearing and the rest of it. Albo saw whether he was emotionally invested, whether he was morally invested, ideologically invested. Again, he's a pragmatist, it doesn't matter. He saw an opportunity for him to position himself as the pro-business, centrist, moderate face of Labor and to outflank Shorten, ironically, given that Shorten is the kingmaker of the Victorian right, to outflank Shorten on the right, despite him, of course, being a warlord of the left. And he did that. And it was the most amazing political reverse ferret, Rochambeau, I have ever seen in my life. And I've, I spend my life obsessing over Labor politics. And it was, it was just a masterclass in how to 
outfox someone, how to outflank them. And of course, Shorten is still sort of left spinning, thinking, how the, did I lose the prime ministership by saying all this stuff that I didn't even believe in? Um, because again, he, was, he too was a product of you know, Victorian politics. You had all the Dan stands around. I'm sure every time he went out to dinner in his electorate of Maribyrnong, he was hearing all the things. He's saying, this is what Labor has to do. This is what Labor has to do. And I still hear it when I go to functions. People say, no, no, you've got to do negative gearing. We've got to go for a republic. We've got to do all this stuff. I mean, you know, we'd probably lose the election, but we've got to stand for something. So if we're going to lose the election, what's the point? Like, what are you doing here? If you want to lose elections, go and join the Greens. <laughs> um, where some of them would be very, um, very comfortable. Um, and so... And so again, this is a government that deliberately positioned itself as non-threatening and centrist in the lead up to the 2022 election. The result was that it won, but it didn't win a huge primary vote, as we all know, but it won as the safest option, the least worst option, which is of course the beauty of two party preferred politics. The difficulty of course is when it came to election night and Albo had to give a rousing speech in his Canterbury Helson Park RSL just down the road from my place, but I, I was in no fit to be seen in public, but uh, no fit state to be seen in public. So I was just, you know, watching the, watching the news going. And of course he comes out, he's got this cheering throng of supporters, Labor true faithful, true believers in front of him. And he's going, and I promise that, you know, on my first day of government, I will. And he realises he's got nothing in the can. He hasn't promised to do anything. All these promises, what not to do. And so he infamously now um, utters the, the words that made, it was lucky I wasn't in public because I basically fainted, um, said, and we will introduce the Uluru Statement in full. And this was something no one knew he was going to say except him and a couple of people, I think, pretty much literally on the night, just as he was sort of working out there. You can imagine as he took to the stage, you know, the last thing his advice said was, sorry, what? <laughs> and... Um, and that happened and we all know the result of that. It was absolutely disastrous because um, it has to be said the economic cycle has been very generous to the political cycle. If you're Anthony Albanese, the cost of living crisis only really started to fully bite after it already won um, and what little damage or hurt it was causing before that, he could blame on Scott Morrison. And then of course, it smashed everybody, we were right up against it. You had that, you know, the, the second half or two thirds of that massive rate of uh, run of interest rate hikes. But guess what? As of this year, it looks like inflation's coming down, rates are gonna go down, and he's gonna get that beautiful sort of plane right up until the next election. So again, in political terms, they call that being kicked in the ass by a rainbow. And, <laughs> And, and that is, and you know, again, so, you know, um, it's like the, the lucky general, you know, it's always said, you know, this soldier gets asked, what sort of general would you like to serve under? And you say, a lucky one. Albo's been very lucky. Um, and, and so I suppose after all the, the, the debacle of The Voice and all the people heard was Labor talking about The Voice, which again was very good politics on Dutton's part, because all Dutton would do is ask Albanese about The Voice. And every time Albanese would say, you know, why are you focused on The Voice and cost of living? He goes, no, 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 we're not focused on The Voice. We're focused on cost of living. We're not focused on The Voice. And no, so there he goes, it's talking about The Voice again. <laughs> and, and again, that was incredibly effective. And you know, it, it can't be defended the way the campaign was run. I was a supporter of The Voice. I was here with um, Warren Mundine uh, about a year ago exactly um, uh, debating um, its merits. It's fair to say the merits that I ascribed to it were um, rather bullish. And, um, and, and Warren and Jacinda's campaign against it was just incredibly effective. Our campaign was just absolutely woeful and embarrassing and, and childlike and I can't um, apologise for it enough. And um, um, certainly my personal fury uh, is limitless. But... 
I'm seeing a therapist now. We're making really good progress. So I don't want to delve too much back into it. But point, point being, as Jennifer very astutely said, um, after that kind of lost weekend, if you like, of 2023, that wasted year where all the um, energy and debate and 400 million bucks and the rest of it was thrown into this referendum that ended up being an absolute nothing sandwich, absolutely nothing burger. Um, we come to the end of 2023 with like back to ground zero, back to the drawing board. And what have they got? They've got nothing. Um, so the thinking behind the reversal of the tax cuts is, is sort of multifold. One is the government already thought it was doing lots about cost of living, free childcare, free TAFE, you know, um, it rattles off all the usual stuff, $23 billion in the budget last year in cost of living measures, but nobody knew about it. Nobody thought they were getting anything. And of course, that's completely understandable because if you're still hurting and maybe you're hurting 1% less than you otherwise would be or whatever it may be, you're not going to think, oh, no, it's fine. The government's really helping me out. And of course, everyone's hurting. So. Uh, there was a poll uh, at the end of last year, I think it was in the weekend, Telegraph, Weekend, News Corp papers. 80% of people thought the government wasn't doing um, enough or anything for them on cost of living. So that's 23 billion bucks and you're basically spending a billion dollars per percent of people that actually even know you're doing anything at all, let alone whether they like it. So, um, so no one was listening to them. No one realised they were doing anything or thought they were doing anything. And the thinking behind the tax backflip was, well, they'll beat the shit out of us for it, but at least they'll know it's happening. Everyone will be saying it's happening. Every single person will be saying that this is happening and every single person will know that they're getting a tax cut. And of course, that is exactly what happened. And again, it was brutal, pragmatic, arguably immoral. It depends on how much you believe that politicians should keep their promises. Again, exactly as Jennifer said, when I talked to people about it, and I was saying they should, needed to hold the line for the sake of Labor's long-term credibility and economic integrity, they needed to hold the line um, to show that it was the party of aspiration. Um, but they didn't, and it turns out maybe I was a bit naive in my thoughts because, you know, when I talked to people about it and said, anyway, the Prime Minister broke a promise, not the Prime Minister lied, and he goes, oh, mate, they're all liars, you know? Oh, what, you trust them? You're an idiot. And I went, would seem so. Um, so they figured, they, you know, the brand is tainted anyway, the political brand is tainted anyway, um, and then they just get this huge tsunami of attention about what every single taxpayer is going to get. And you would have heard it mentioned multiple times here. It's being shouted from the rooftops by Peter Dutton, conservative media outlets. Every single Australian, the average Australian is only going to get $16 a week. Everyone's going, $16 a week? All right, that's something. You know, and at least they know what they're getting. So... Um, their enemies end up doing their publicity for them. And the result of that, as you would have seen in Monday's news poll, is more than two to one in favour of the tax cuts. They don't care about the broken promises. They just want the money. And I wrote something similar to that effect. So, the, um, so again, that resets Labor not just sort of politically, but it also gives something it didn't have before, um, which, which goes back even before the 2022 election, which is what it actually was, a sense of self. What does Labor actually believe in or stand for? The problem is if you go to any election, um, you know, proclaiming what the loudest, um, which are by necessity almost um, left-wing voices of Labor say it stands for, you will never get elected in this country in a million years. So you can't say what all the activists on the left are saying. And for so long, the right of the party has been so cowed by those voices 
that it hasn't actually articulated a positive vision of what it stands for. Instead, it's just said, oh, no, we're not going to go that far. We're not going to do that, you know. Or, you know, look, we might do that in the long run, but we can't say we're doing it because we'd never get elected. And so the, the right lacked a cohesive idea of what it was and what it stood for. And on top of this, of course, you've got this bizarre thing where the left thinks that tax cuts are somehow the domain of conservatives, that tax cuts in themselves are a conservative thing no matter who they're going to or a liberal uh, thing. Uh, no matter who they're going to, because we should be building the welfare state and blah, 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 blah. Ironically, of course, if Albo had taken this tax package, which is better for working and middle Australians, to the election, he might have actually got a higher primary vote. But again, they were so scared of tax cuts generally, they ended up backing tax cuts for wealthier people than the people they would actually help. Which brings us to the other... Um, uh, so, it's, so it helps, it's starting to help Labor think about what it is, what it wants, who it stands for. And that's something that is very much at the heart of both Chalmers and Albanese's thinking, whether they're talking to each other or not. <laughs> I'm insisted that, I'm, I'm, um, uh, they insist that the relationship is fine when they talk to me. But, um, but both of them, I can assure you, are personally very heavily invested in saying, you know what, like, like Mary Queen of Scots before her execution, whipping off the black dress, showing the red underneath says, you know what, I don't care anymore. This is what we actually believe in. And it's electorally very strong, as we've seen. I think it will save Dunkley for them. It's in the, based around the seat of Frankston, which I grew up in Dandenong. They used to call Frankston Dandenong by the sea. But it's, um, <laughs> and that was not a compliment. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but it's very aspirational now. And it's got, you know, sort of Mount Eliza on the way to the Mornington Peninsula. So it's got a lot of, you know, a bit of money now. And, um, and it's got, you know, Tradies, again, earn more than all of us combined. So um, there is that. And then there's, I suppose, the political, um, tactical matters, which is that all the wealthy voters that that would have meant um, missing out, if they're voting left at all, they're voting teal and green. They're not voting for the Labor Party. So this takes 2024 right to the outer suburbs, right to the regions. Dutton doesn't need to worry about the teals anymore. Albo doesn't need to worry about the greens anymore. And that means they're going to be putting mainstream suburban middle Australian values or more importantly economic um, needs right at the centre of politics and that makes me as a pragmatist very very happy so maybe there is some good to be said for 2024 after all. Thank you very much. Well thanks to our two speakers for two very thoughtful and lively presentations so we come to questions and discussion if uh, we'll take this off and um, lead off with a question to, uh, to Jennifer. Um, the advantage we have today is that um, Jennifer's based in Melbourne, uh, Joe's based in Sydney. So what about the state situation? In, um, in Melbourne you've got the same government but a, a, new, a new Labor Premier and here we've got a different government with a new Labor Premier. So how do you see those political situations in the, in the general Commonwealth context? Uh, well, I would say that, of course, I think the Victorian government over years under Daniel Andrews has been an absolute disgrace and, uh, and it continues to be so and I don't think Jacinta Allen is actually going to change that at all. I mean, it's spending programs, it's approach to life in general. I, I think, it, you know, it's up, up there for one of the worst governments um, we've seen uh, on a state level. Um, 
and uh, and you've got the budget to show for it. You've now got the new taxes to show for it. I mean, I think the contrast, for example, with what's you know going on in South Australia, but and and the kind of far more moderate approach, I think, of a, this Labor government in New South Wales is quite um, instructive. However, what you don't, what you also have, of course, is a completely moribund Liberal Party, and I mean, it says, oh, they don't even bother to turn up. Um, and I think you know that but that has meant that the um, Andrews government's been allowed to get away with what it's been allowed to get away with, quite apart from the madness of Victorians on the COVID stuff, um, and you know the I stand with Dan types. There's a lot of them about, but um, you know there there were also you know reasonable, moderate people who feel as if they've got no alternative, and so I think um, uh, you know we, we're just going to continue to see I think Victoria's economic decline. Um, and that's a that's a bad thing. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Uh, Victoria sort of reminds me of the Branch Davidians at Waco. Um, no matter how bad things are going, they just follow the leader. They don't. Yeah. It's it's. I'm a, I'm a former Victorian. I'm now reformed. Um, but um, again, and I was obviously also like Jennifer, very critical of Andrews and his obscene, completely nonsensical anti-science uh, COVID measures. Um, the closing of schools is particularly egregious and unforgivable. Um, but they don't care, they just go with it. And as Jen, as Jen said, Victorians are just crazy. They have been so comprehensively gaslit on this issue that they, if you go down there even now, you'll still see people sort of scurrying around in fear, you know, wearing masks in the middle of vacant football ovals. It's <laughs> It's extraordinary. And, um, an empty CBD. and an empty CBD. And, and, and this is because um, what Andrews has done and has, is so incredibly good at doing, he has, he has now made Victoria structurally left-wing. The entire state, the entire apparatus. People joking about it being the People's Republic of Victoria, but he's actually kind of achieved that. He has he's flipped um, the the control of the Labor Party down there. The, the Victorian right have been notoriously split and it took Greg Sword and Stephen Conroy and Bill Shorten years and years and years to, to, to make it unified. They are now split again. And in the meantime, the left, thanks to the, um, the federal takeover of the branches after the branch sacking inquiry was exposed, I wonder who leaked that. Um, he has been able to take wholesale control of both the parliamentary um, Labor Party, so a majority of members of the Parliamentary Labor Party are now left-wing, including senior people like Tim Pallas, who actually sold out and went from right to left so he could be made Deputy Premier. Sadly, that didn't work out because the right decided it's time to rise up again. Um, and the, uh, and you know, state conference, the, the membership all left. The two biggest right-wing unions are split, the SDA and the, the AWU, which again makes that. so. And of course, the public servant service, which always tends to sort of, almost you know, by its very nature and in its very self-interest, being a public institution, tends to um, automatically swing to the left. So Victoria is a left-wing state. It's almost a left-wing one-party state, and the opposition is absolutely useless and absolutely hopeless. And you can see this because you've actually got the perfect sort of control group in Queensland where you had the exact same thing. You had a government that was run by left-wingers, even though Palaszczuk is from the right, she's basically just a, a figurehead run by Jackie Trad and then Stephen Miles. Um, and as soon as she goes, that's it. It's like the curtain coming down in Oz and the wizard's just there on a little exercise bike. So, and then the, the electorate's out with the brickbats, Chris Afouli's, you know, almost unbackable to win the next election. Whereas, you know, Victoria, they couldn't even put on the...
Commonwealth Games, for the love of God. I mean, you know, they could do that at Hurlston Park, you know, and, and yet, you know, they're, now they're taxing people for their COVID fails. And again, Victoria punished people, locked them in their houses, locked housing commission residents in tiny little grey, you know, miserablest, uh, brutalist flats, literally, um, and made them all suffer. In Queensland, they were actually allowed to go all over the stuff. They were just, you know, stopping dying babies at the border. But, you know, like, Andrew's made his people suffer astronomically more than Palestine did. I don't know if I have, actually. <laughs> but point, point being, Queenslanders had a far better COVID than Victorians did, and yet even they have risen up and said, no, nah, you're gone. Whereas in Victoria, they all still, they're all still in the... They're all, all still in, you know, in Waco. Joe, what about New South Wales? Awesome. New South Wales is fantastic. Chris Minns is a legend. Um, and you can see just his, his instinctive, immediate responses on stuff like, you know, the anti-Semitism and his commitment to housing, commitment to getting the budget back into surplus. That's the difference. Australia Day as well. Thank you for reminding me. Um, that is the difference between Labor left and Labor right. And it is a very, very big difference. They're almost like two completely different parties. And obviously, you can tell which one I like. Dimitri. Oh. Thanks both. Um, if I may target this one to, to you, Joe, no offence. Yes, no go. Um, firstly, you gave credit for the tax cut change to Albanese when yesterday it was disclosed it was actually the brilliant idea of the Treasury Secretary. Oh, yeah, well, the Treasury Secretary was asked to provide advice to the Treasurer. That no, no, they actually said it was his idea. He was okay. thinking over the holidays. But right. my, okay. my, 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 question, my question actually to you is, you, um, you kind of described what I think is the problem. You said that, you described that Labor, you, you showed how, you explained how Labor wins and keeps government. Yeah. But you didn't actually, you touched on it. You didn't actually explain why they want to be in government. Yep. And that's the same question you could ask of the Liberal Party or the coalition. However, you did say you're familiar with the Labor Party, so I'll ask you about the Labor yeah, Party. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, look, well, I, I suppose that the honest truth is there are two distinct camps in the Labor Party. One wants, you know, one tends to be dominated by wealthier, um, more progressive, in air quotes, um, university educated um, activists sort of the whitlam generation um the left basically and the other is the more traditional working class outer suburban base that um labor traditionally had until the sort of you know until the split in the 60s and the commies infiltrated the joint and stuff so um so so there is still a strong legacy from the sort of hawk keating anti-communist um uh, mold, which I'm obviously very wedded to, and which many people in Labor are very wedded to, but that sort of thinking has started troublingly to um, to sort of, I, I suppose, evaporate a little bit or lost lost some of its power in the party. And I won't bore you with all, all the numbers, but you know, the left now holds a majority of conference, um, national conference, um, the national executive. Albo has a casting vote, but otherwise it would be equal between left and right. And Albo is technically left, even though he would always vote right. So all this, so again, it's if that sounds a bit schizophrenic and like the party's got an identity crisis, it does. If you, and again, if you look at what the sort of government Peter Malinowskis or is running in South Australia or Chris Minns is running in uh, New South Wales compared to, you know, Jacinda Allen in Victoria or um, Stephen Miles in Queensland, you would almost you would almost not if an alien came to Earth, they would not think they were in the same party just based on rhetoric alone, notwithstanding other stuff. So, um, so I so there is a, a 
debate, a war, a struggle, whatever you want to call it, going on in the Labor Party about what it should do, what it should stand for. My position and the position of many, many smart people in the New South Wales right is that it needs to focus on bread and butter, back to basics issues. You know, yes, we support Australia Day, but more importantly, who gives a we should be focusing on making working families in the suburbs better off, helping their families, helping them get it home, helping them get into helping them get a, a house, uh, their own first home, helping them in education, just basic stuff. Leave all this woke crap alone, leave all this kind of um, culture war crap alone and just focus on the basics, building infrastructure, transport, schools, hospitals, easy stuff. Jennifer, do you want to make a comment? Well, I, I think um, to Joe's point that there is obviously a kind of a great division in Labor. I mean, what they're... But I, to me, the gaping hole is still... What are they going to do to, to build all the schools and do the education and all of that? You actually need um, a strongly growing economy. And, you know, as I said, you know, Australia has been brilliant at, mood, at, at coming along. I mean, I, I notice, I mean, I just think it's hilarious that um, Jim Chalmers can hardly say the word gas or, um, or even iron ore, you know. I mean, it, as if this, all these things just come from nowhere. And there is, I don't see there's much kind of understanding that you actually have to build the growth. Uh, and the economy to allow you to do whatever you want to do socially. Um, it's interesting that the um, head of the Reserve Bank today has more or less said, don't get your hopes up that interest rates won't go up. Um, and overseas, Europe, they're also suggesting that the hold on interest rates mightn't last, that they may go up again. What is behind this? We think inflation's coming down, the government's throwing money around like mad, putting more money into people's pockets. Can we really be sure about where inflation's headed? Because it almost reminds me a little bit of the Fraser years, where economic reform went out the window, good piece by Paul Kelly today in The Australian, and inflation just kept on beating away. And tax cuts kept on coming, but people thought, what's happening to inflation? So what do you think? I actually think um, I, I understood that Michelle Bullock certainly doesn't want to let people think that um, inflation can get away, and as she keeps talking about in that wonderful central banker speak, raising inflationary expectations or embedding them. Um, but I actually think, um, and again, you know, everybody's been wrong about this, you know, including central bankers uh, about where inflation was going, and all the economists in the world. So you know, don't feel surprised if you're confused too. Um, that's my excuse, um, but but it seems to me very clear that unexpectedly inflation has fallen more than people thought, um, and that's kind of obviously a good thing. It may continue to do so. The only catch in that is that whole thing about services inflation and domestic, co you know, despite the fact that Labor likes to blame, you know, everything from the war in Ukraine to, um, you know, whatever else it blames globally, um, it's actually dom the domestic pressures that are the greatest now. But I do think that the economy is weakening, inflation will probably fall. Michelle Bullock is being much nicer, I think, than Philip Lowe in, in terms of saying, oh, look, a couple of quarters of relatively high wages growth doesn't matter, and by the way, we will get productivity back. That, to me, is a big assumption. Let's hope she's right. Frankly, nobody knows. But at the moment, if she's not, if she's not right, well, then the economy will actually kind of get worse, and therefore, interest rates will fall because the economy is worse. So, in the end, I do think that there will be, as Joe said, kicked in the ass by a rainbow in terms of labour. That you will have a year of falling interest rates, and and the hope is, 
and the analysis at the moment is that the economy and unemployment won't be suffering too badly as a result. We'll find out. Yeah, I certainly I have no idea, none of the, um, the the economic sort of understanding that Jennifer does, but it's to me it just simply felt like managing expectations. It was that they were so terrified of having um, effectively promised rate cuts and all the carnage that ensued from that that they're just not making this, anything that could even be remotely interpreted as a promise or a prediction. Uh, you're much younger than I am, but I've been following politics since Harold Holt was Prime Minister. And I must say, I think this government's the worst I've ever come across. And uh, that... <laughs> well, they're in the negative. Goff just called to say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and the, the member for McMahon, Chris Bowen, would have to be one of the worst ministers any government's ever produced okay. at any time. I think we take that as a comment, as Tony Jones was. <laughs> Hello and thank you. Meaningful economic reform, I was hoping someone would say we were going to have some this year. It seems it requires governments to assess trade-offs and make hard decisions short-term for long-term benefit. These days it seems very hard for governments to do this. Why is this? Do you think it's because of the politicians or should we actually blame the electorate? Do you think we've become unable as voters to vote in governments with visions beyond um, giving me a tax cut right now for $16 a week? Oh, sure. Um, well, um, I, look, I think actually it's a bit of everything. I think I think it is harder to um, actually get reform through these days. Um, and I think um, the, the, the kind of that growth of that kind of socially progressive -y left thing which you see in the Senate makes it impossible to or not impossible sorry it makes it very hard to to do things as a coalition government um and then as a labor government you know you have to kind of want to and as joe's explained so eloquently you know the divisions in labor make that impossible but i also think that people are re unrealistic about you know what um what governments can and do and nobody wants to be um a loser nobody these days you know and of course I know I'm going to sound like an old fart too, but you know I do think the rise of social media and the fact that you can kind of instantly get complaints about anything and and, and kind of get a, a massive kind of nucleus of people who will complain, um, I think that becomes quite powerful too. So you have to have very very strong, determined leadership, um, honest conversations, etc., and that is very tricky to do in an election campaign. So I do think I, I don't. I must say, I, I think there has been a deterioration in, not all, but obviously a lot of the people who go into politics. You know, I don't think there's kind of the same strength, for example, on either front bench as there, as there might have been once. Um, and, uh, but, but, but yeah, we, we've also become kind of unrealistic too. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very glad you asked that because I had that written down on my little bit of paper and I kept gibbering on, I forgot to get to it. But um, I, th I think just uh, politically, reform is very very hard it is very very difficult to take big reform to an election from opposition because you subject yourself to a scare campaign again we saw that in uh, 2019 um, and what the, the pattern tends to be there's always exceptions but the pattern tends to be that an opposite you know governments you know the old cliche oppositions don't win elections governments lose them i think it's, it's 
largely true. You know, if you look at, say, for example, the last uh, 40, 40 years, uh, 40, 50 years, um, Whitlam obviously sp spectacularly lost his election several times, three even. Um, uh, and then Fraser, of course, there was an economic crisis. Hawke comes in and hits the ground running. You know, we're talking about the 40th anniversary of Medicare um, this week and, you know, the Accord and then, of course, all that um, economic reform, floating the dollar, making the RBA uh, independent, all that amazing, fantastic stuff. All that happens, like the, 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 the green button on that gets hit as soon as Hawke gets up in, in 83 and, and, and if governments, if you, if you don't do big reform I think in your first term or second term or at least flag it in your first term and sort of hammer out the details in your second, you're probably never going to do it because everything else just sort of catches up with you and, you know, again. And so the problem with, so, so say Hawke, Medicare and, you know, the Accord, the economic reforms, the rest of it, Howard and the GST, and again, he comes in and says, right, we're going to go to the... Now, everyone says, well, why didn't Labor take its new tax cuts to an election? Well, it couldn't because Howard came to power with an 18-seat majority or something like that. And it got absolutely shredded in, in 98, two years later, as a result of that GST promise because you know, it was courageous in both the literal and Sir Humphrey Appleby meaning of the word. Um, and... You know, he just got in, thanks to people like Pat Farmer and, and those marginal seats, um, by about a handful. Um, so uh, Albanese does not have that luxury, despite the, the massive poll numbers that he got uh, in the first year of his term. He didn't get them at the right time. His primary vote was terribly low. And Labor's um, structural base to contest the next election is very, very... It's a real mishmash. But, but, yeah, but I think it's also more than that. I mean, you've got to have um, an instinctive vision about where you want to go and you've got to be prepared to take kind of big decisions that require trade-offs and require selling. I mean, Keating was obviously, you know, the force, for example, in, the, in that. Um, Howard, with Costello, but, you know, even Howard had a very, very clear vision. I don't think the Labor government has a clear vision. I don't think Jim Chalmers has a clear vision. I don't think... Um, Josh Frydenberg or Scott Morrison have particularly clear visions either. Um, but uh, that is certainly what's lacking. So I don't think it's just the, the problem of trying to sell the electorate. Is also you, you need to have that idea that you want these big changes and, you, you know, you, that you, you see the trade-offs and what's possible. Yeah, exactly. So in what, I, what I was going to go on to say was that his, his, he decided that whatever, all, all the political capital he had riding high in the polls, he was going to put on the voice. That was going to be his big reform. That was going to be his big vision, big ticket item. And he got so burnt by that that it's almost like they were almost never... I don't think he's particularly interested in economics. Yeah, well... I. <laughs> Thanks very much for tonight. Uh, you both mentioned the tax cuts and buying a by-election um, later in the year or early next year when there's the next election. People will have forgotten where the money came from, but they'll remember my word is my bond. Do you think it'll have an impact 12 months down the track um, when people forget that the $16 has come and gone and they've got nothing to look forward to? Well, as I said in my speech, I, I don't think... I, yes, of course, that's a negative. Yes, that is... Um, the, my word is my bond and the, and, and the Liberal Party will run on that and it will have some impact. 
But it, I mean, I just think it depends on a whole lot of other factors as well. And as I said, I you know think most people will be suspicious of politicians anyway. They'll also be suspicious of the co of the coalition. Um, there'll be enough you know evidence the Labor Party will you know bring up against Peter Dutton, and it's going to be a very aggressive, I think, nasty and not particularly uh, enlightening um, campaign at all. But I mean, the thing is that what saves Albanese is, um, or I mean, he should, given the economic stuff, he should be cruising. Right, he should be cruising, um, but I think you know, with twenty seats or whatever it is, it's you know, it's a very tough ask. Anyway, it'll depend on what happens. But unless the economy is really bad, I mean, obviously they do start with um, Labor starts with a big advantage. Thanks very much. Just wanted to understand a bit more about the teals and the crossbenchers and what influence you think they have on the government's policy agenda and I guess also the strength of the relationship between the government and the crossbenchers. Um, I heard Jackie Lambie this morning speaking about how she thought Tony Burke was a really great negotiator and probably the best in her political career, which I was surprised with given that she had a strong relationship with Matthias Cormann. So I guess I'm just trying to understand how much the government is taking their views into a whole lot of policy issues okay. and whether they've learnt a lot from the 2010 minority government period. Okay. Yeah, um, the Teals are obviously just awful, awful, awful pontificating, moralising millionaires. I hate them. Um, <laughs> The, um, and to me, it's a sort of existential nightmare. To me, my what makes me wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night is that Labor will end up looking like the Teals, that, you know, that, that horrendous sort of inner city, upper middle class, tertiary educated, you know, cultural Marxist who pontificates on why everything... It's just nauseating. Um, the good news is that the Teals and the Greens have kind of stopped that from happening because there's now no political value in Labor going down that path. And this is why I suppose I said it in my first remarks that that is why the good thing about this contest is that it will be for mainstream Australian values. This next election will be fought in the centre and you'll have all those bleating people. I mean, the reason why climate change or integrity is such, uh, you know, these abstract concepts or very long-term concepts for these people is because they don't have any pressing concerns to actually worry about and they can't actually jump up and down about things like poverty or child education because it would be frankly really nauseating because they're doing it from these incredibly wealthy backgrounds so um, again I'm not I don't want to sound like a class warrior but I'm, I'm just I'm just all about I think you know rich people should just be happy to be rich and just you know like <laughs> stop lecturing the rest of us about wearing masks we're trying to get out you know trying to get a good school Labor is still very concerned about the Greens and the inner city seats and that and there's a lot of overlap there uh, the, so the Greens you know the, Labor, the, the, the prevailing wisdom in Labor um, is that basically it can't afford to really, it, sooner or later it is going to have to just let those green seats go. Uh, it is a great shame that it lost three in, um, in Brisbane at the last election. It was unforgivable that Terry Butler was not able to hold her own seat. That, you know, that would be a walk of shame for her, but given that she couldn't even walk up to a door and knock on it, I'm not sure if she's going to. But, um, but, you know, I don't know, I don't know how... You know, I don't know how a Labor MP loses a seat in an election where Labor comes to power from opposition. That's anyway. Um, but once those seats go green, they probably won't. Again, these are wealthy people who want to be ideologically pure, and the the party that offers them the ability to you know to sleep well at night, knowing they've been more outspoken about Palestine than the seat next door or whatever, or that they've you know restored some whatever. 
Um, so that Labor will have to go back to... Labor can only form government long-term in the suburbs and the regions, and that's why these tax cuts, you know, then it's not just buying um, Dunkley, it's buying... Josie says... Yes, but, but there is... I've stolen the microphone because I want to go back to the question, which was about the crossbench, yes, uh, and in terms of negotiating with the crossbench. And, I mean, I think the thing is that obviously you've got the Greens in there, so they're going to be to Labor despite despite the you know um and they're far, certainly far more helpful to labor than they ever would be to the coalition and similarly you've got you know the numbers mean that you you've got um both jackie lamb and david pocock i mean you know the fact that so much of our <laughs> government policy just de depends on convincing those two is actually you know just annoys annoys me enormously but they're going to be kind of tend to be on the left so i mean Yes, a good negotiator, I'm sure he is. Um, years of negotiating as a union negotiator would, would have helped, but, you know, he's got, he starts from a much more positive thing. I'll just say, yeah, no, my yeah. material fear is Labor goes into minority and needs the teals in the lower house. That would, that okay. would be genuinely terrifying. Now, we've got one question. Everyone's got to be brief. We've got a question right up against the back wall. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the conversation tonight. Just want to know, is inflation now the milkshake and hamburger, is that what we've got out of $16? Just want to sense check that. But the government's major industrial policy is this National Reconstruction Fund. Um, from what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, there's basically no money actually flowing anywhere to anything meaningful yet, and pretty much the same is all the AUKUS talk. You know, I walked the floor at Indo-Pacific and not a single person was saying they were getting any money. So do you think that any of that will actually flow and have any impact on the business sector before we get to the next election? Uh, um, I, I think no. Basically, no. I, they're, they're still talking and it takes forever and maybe I think the National Reconstruction Fund may give out money but I don't think it's going to be, it'll be the promise and the idea. It's, again, it's the image, you know, is, is pretty good, um, I think. Yeah, look, I think certainly with the industrial relations stuff, it's going to be beholden, you know, a lot of concessions have been made. It's The intention of it is more to stop companies like Qantas from pretending they're three different companies instead of just one company, whether it could then be used to, for, you know, sort of for more malevolent pattern bargaining, if you like, so that, you know, every fish and chip shop employee in the country goes on strike at the same time. I don't think that will happen. I think the unions themselves know they can't let that happen. And so hopefully, while it may look like the unions have had a big wing or have the government over a barrel that in fact the price for that the the deal if you the payoff for that if you like is that there will not be industrial action that they will not be sort of be terrorizing employers because that would be terrible can i just say one thing which is i i, I was speaking to some of the big miners uh, the in in the pilbara for example they are actually terrified um as well for for their own workforce what's going to happen to them in terms of their own productivity but also their ability to set up new um, new mines and new projects, for example, in South Australia. It's, I, I think they're really, really thinking again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I know we couldn't get to all the questions tonight, but we always finish on time. So we've had a, a great night tonight. A lot of information from Jennifer Hewitt. Of course, we read in the Fin Review every day. Every day. And... Uh, Joe, Joe Hildebrand, a columnist for News Corp and uh, a star performer on, uh, performer on Sky News, yeah, uh, which I always watch. Um, so look, a lot of people here tonight, everyone's busy, the air conditioning's not working, so no one wants to listen to me. So just say thanks to our speakers and well done. Thank you.